I know sometimes we just kind of take it for granted what we're singing, but there were some pretty amazing and powerful words that were sung this morning. And uh, I don't know if, if you're reminded of this as much as I am, that when I utter those words, it's me affirming or agreeing with those statements. So it's me saying, God, I, I want you to be my vision. I want you to be the one that guides and directs my steps. But one of the set of words really struck me this morning when we sang the song about God's kingdom come. I asked uh, Igor to put it up on the screen. Um, I just love the words of this. That we are asking God to lift up the heads of all the weak and the poor, all that suffer and mourn, all those who are hungry, all those in need of housing. You just heard about Thrive Housing. Um, we're asking that you, God, would lift up all of those people, including ourselves. And the Lord is at hand, meaning here and present and alive and active. And we are praying that your kingdom come and that the kingdom be yours. And uh, that is powerful, powerful words that we uttered this morning. And it is the reason we are looking into the text this morning. We uh, are taking a chance to look in Genesis and to consider again that God's kingdom come. What does that mean? What does that look like for us? And uh, this series is a little bit different than we typically do because it's a little bit more detailed, a little bit more information heavy than uh, maybe some of the other types of talks that we give. Uh, but I am eager this morning for us to get back into the book of Genesis. Last week, we kind of uh, just dipped our toe. If we were going swimming, we just kind of put our toe into the water to feel how cold it is and uh, see if we're ready to get a little deeper into the water. And uh, that's what we're going to do this morning is wade in a little bit into account number one uh, in the scriptures of the creation narrative. So let me pray. And then I'll give you a quick little outline of uh, how the morning I intend to spend the rest of our time, and uh, we'll get after it. God, we do pray what we just sang, and we echo it again, that uh, we want your kingdom come. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want you to lift up all of those that suffer, all of those that mourn, all of those that are weak, all of those that are poor. We want you to be the one who is exalted, and in the midst of lifting them up, may all praise go to you, and may your kingdom come, and may it be at hand. May we see it here in our city. May we be alive to it. May we be a part of it. Help us to be active in it. Help us as a community to recognize and realize what it is that you are doing in our midst through new community. And God, may we continue to uh, live our lives as a living sacrifice, as the scriptures say, to offer back to you our very hands and feet to do your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a little uh, quick idea of how it's going to flow this morning. I'm going to start off with a few reminders from last week. Remember, this is uh, week two on the series. Uh, so a few reminders, then I'm going to cover some essential truths from the text. Uh, so there will be two essential truths that we need to understand from the text. And then uh, the last thing will be a few points for consideration uh, for our time in the book of Genesis. All right. Like I said, we'll be in chapter one. If you have your Bible, you can turn to chapter one. We'll be referencing the text 
uh, on several occasions. So that's, uh, that's where we're headed this morning. First off, the reminders, okay? A few reminders. Uh, number one, the series builds. So that's a simple way of saying that last week, you needed to know the information from last week because we're adding to it this week. Don't sweat it if you weren't here last week. You will still be able to follow and track it. However, uh, you will understand it a little bit more this week if you will have gone through last week. So my encouragement is this. Uh, throughout the week, feel free to go back and listen to the podcast from the week before to kind of uh, prepare for the following week. All five weeks are intended to build on each other over this series. Uh, second, just a reminder to let the text speak. So often when we come to the text, what we tend to do is read into it rather than allowing it to speak to us. So this is my encouragement to say, take on the role of a listener. Take on the role of someone who's anticipating that the text, that God's word will speak and that it'll be clear and that we just simply have to listen and respond to what it's saying. Uh, it's another way of saying that we need to let the text speak to us on its own terms. So instead of us coming with the terms in which we're willing to listen to it, uh, may we be prepared to listen to what it might be saying. Uh, part of that, I mentioned last week, um, might be helpful is this little image. Okay, we talked about this image. This image was first an image that we were able to conceive of in 1960, because that was the first time in which we were able to stand outside of our own situation and observe the earth from space and then demonstrate that to everyone via the TV in 1960, which means this. When the text says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the readers, the original readers, would have not had this image come to their mind. Impossible, because they had no concept for it. No one would have had this concept come to their mind until 1960. So it is very recent that when you read that and you think of this, that's not how the ancients would have read it. It's not how they would have understood it. And so it's uh, best that we can, if we can, remember, it can never mean what it didn't mean to them originally. All right? Number three. Uh, in this series, I think it's important to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of many scholars. And what I mean by that is, you have all known me for some time, uh, and I have never and will never claim to have authority. I will also never claim to say, this is what the Bible says, and I know it, and therefore you must agree with it. Never. That's not my approach. That won't be our approach. Um, we're not even claiming to come up with or dream up all we've been sharing in this series or will share in this series. I say that to say we have spent a lot of time, years, studying and thinking about and reflecting on what other people have spent their whole careers, their whole lives studying. And I am just simply, and we through this series, are simply relaying the learning of our journey, what we have been experiencing in our faith and our growth and our studies of the scriptures with the whole goal of being that we as a community move closer to Jesus. Our hope and dream in this series 
is that as we invest in understanding what the book of Genesis is saying, that we will, in turn, understand more clearly what Jesus wants us to know and therefore love and follow him more deeply. Point four, fourth reminder, don't get stuck. Okay, don't get stuck. Here's what I mean. I am going to bounce through several points this morning. We're going to kind of go rapid fire through a few things. Um, Don't get stuck on one. Don't be like bogged down on that, have the wheels spinning and go, man, I can't go any further. Just, Just keep following, just keep going. And my hope is that as we connect the dots, the picture will become more clear and make more sense the further we get into it. Um, that's maybe just another fancy way of saying suspend judgment again, keep listening through, and um, as we get further in, it'll make more sense. If you do have questions, jot them down. Talk about it in group. Um, I'd be more than happy to answer questions with you throughout the week as well. So don't get stuck. Keep moving as we move this morning. All right? Done with the reminders. Now we're moving into what I'm considering essential truths that we need to understand about the text in order to get the main points we're going to talk about in a few moments. Two essential truths. Number one, essential truth number one, the text is telling us that there are two separate accounts of the creation narrative. Okay? This is what the text is revealing to us. Now, some experts suggest that there are two separate authors for the two separate accounts. Others suggest that it's the same author, but he is trying to come at it from two different perspectives. I am not going to, this morning, argue for one or the other. I'm just going to give you the background and let you decide what you believe to be most consistent. The reason I'm doing that is because neither opinion impacts the reliability of the text or its message. So neither of those opinions, whether it's two authors or one author, will have any bearing on the reliability or the message of this particular text. All right? So I'm going to move through a few of these quickly to help us understand why it is perceived that there are two separate accounts of the singular creation narrative. Make sense? One, there's different introductions. All of this will be on the screen as well. Each of the two accounts starts dramatically different. Uh, Genesis 1.1, you're very familiar with this. In the beginning, God created, right? But then at Genesis 2.1, at the conclusion of the first account, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. So account number one, in the beginning God created, introduction sentence, we talked about it last week. You get to the end of that first creation account. And it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. End of creation account story number one. Number two, in verse four of Genesis two. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens or the earth and the heavens. It seems to suggest that this is the beginning of a second account. You have a first account with a start and a finish. Now you have a second account with a start and ultimately later a finish. Second reason, there are different names for God used in both accounts. The first account only refers to God with the name Elohim. So every time God is referred to, he is always referred to as Elohim. In the second account, 
it only refers to God as Yahweh. So in the first one, everything Elohim. The second one, everything Yahweh or Yahweh Elohim. It's a stark contrast in the way that the two texts speak of God. Now this is clearly seen in the Hebrew, not as easy to be seen in the English. However, there are certain versions that have worked hard to try to differentiate or distinguish the differences in these texts. Either way, the distinction is very clear that there are two different accounts. Number three, there are different descriptors for creation. Okay, so I'll walk you through a few of these. First, in account one, creation is clearly divided into days. There was day one, there was evening and morning, there was day two, there was day three, right? Creation account two, there are no days or periods of time mentioned at all in the second account. When we go back to account one, creation has a cosmic scope, meaning big picture, everything being created. When you get to account two, creation is only concerned with things that are happening on the earth. It is zeroed in just on the earth. Okay? Third, animals in the first account are created before man. In the second account, man is created before the animals. Again, we're just showing the difference in the two accounts to help us know that there are two separate accounts. Third, or fourth, the focus of the animals is creation for cosmic design. So it's all part of this grand narrative that God is doing something big and he creates animals to worship and to be a part of this cosmic creation. And then in account two, the focus of the animal creation is on the intention of giving man a helper. So man, it says, is in need of a helper. Then the animals are created. And then the question becomes, is there a suitable helper? The answer is no. And then Eve comes into the equation, right? The, we'll go to the fifth one. Account number one, there are no names given to any of the animals. In account two, names are given to all the creatures, including man and woman. And last that we'll cover this morning, in account one, it describes the creation of man and woman together. It's described, the language is them language. So he created them, male and female, he created them. It's this idea that there was creation of man and woman together. And in account two, it describes in more details the ordering of creation of man and woman. All right? These are just a few of the differences. I'm not going to take time to go into all of them because the whole point so far is just to highlight there are two accounts, two separate accounts, two different things going on. I'll give you one more. Uh, if we're not convinced yet that there's two separate, I'll give you one final one. And that is symmetry in references to God. So the Bible is full of purposeful exactness. Okay, I could give you hundreds of illustrations throughout the text. Um, but what the Bible often does is it uses literary tools to give us signals and clues kind of below the surface that you only get as you study the literary tools. Okay? Um, so... The creation narratives are no different in that account. So I'm going to just give you a quick little glance at that. N again, not all of it, just part of it. In Genesis 1-1, one, one, 
there are seven words that are used in the Hebrew. In Genesis 1-2, then there are 14, which would be seven times two. In the first creation account, when the word earth is used, it is used 21 times. Again, seven, the number of perfection, times three. When heavens or firmament is described, also 21 times. When the phrase, and it was so, is used another seven times, and God saw that it was good, seven times. In the first account, there are references to God 35 times, seven times five, right? 35 times, and in the second account, there are also exactly 35 references to God. So the use of symmetry is not only demonstrating that there is some very detailed and precise way of writing, but it's also highlighting, again, two separate accounts. 35 uses of God in the first account, 35 uses of God in the second account. So the editor and the writers were intent on getting us to see a big picture and to understand that this was put, in, put together very purposefully. And yet, two separate accounts. Are we tracking? That's essential truth number one. Essential truth number two. The text is telling us that Genesis 1, or account 1, is more poetic in nature than account 2. Okay? So, the first account, Genesis 1, is more poetic in nature than account 2. What I mean by that is there are two particular styles or genres being used. In the first account, it's poetic. The second account is more prose. Now, the first account, and you can all clearly understand this, is written in what is called exalted semi-poetic language. Exalted semi-poetic language. So, let me explain uh, what that means. Basically, it means account one is primarily Hebrew poetry, okay? So it is metered. The whole thing is uh, sectioned out like Hebrew poetry. It has repetition. It has a chiastic structure. It has parallelism. It has symmetry. It has all the things that you would have if you were reading a poetic work, all right? Poetry, a poem. So, this poetic structure is very, very clear in the text, and I would argue it's even clear in English. Now, I'm going to pause just for a second there, because uh, I think it is important to say that I do understand that at times when you're reading your Bible, there can be this uh, understandable fear, okay? And the fear can look something like this. Uh, some of you might be thinking to yourself, how am I supposed to know this? How am I supposed to know that it's poetic in nature? How am I supposed to know seven words in Hebrew times seven in the second? How, what is going on? Right? Or you might think to yourself, how am I supposed to understand my Bible at all if it is written in Hebrew poetry? What do I do? Let me give you a couple little thoughts on this short pause. Number one. This is why it is important that we understand the Bible is meant to be read communally, right? It is meant to be understood and read together. It was never intended to be your little Bible in your little room all by yourself. 
That's why it was an oral tradition. That's why it was communicated broadly. That's why scrolls were read in the temple. Now, we have turned that into our own personal Bible. Nothing wrong with that. We have the freedom and the ability to read it whenever we want. That's amazing. But it is not a reality that almost anyone in the world at the time and many people in the world today still do not have. You realize, I, I went to Africa a couple years ago, and they were literally walking up with sheets of paper that they were, were so tattered. And I'm like, what are you holding on to? And they're like, this is my Bible. I'm like, what is it? And they're like, well, it's three pages from the Gospel of John. Great. What is your job? I'm a pastor. What do you do? I preach. What do you preach from? Well, obviously, the Gospel of John. How often in John? Like all the time. Why? I have no other parts of the Bible. Right? You realize the luxury we have to have our own copy and for many of us, multiple copies. Now, it was always meant to be read in community. If you think to yourself, well, I don't understand part of it. That's okay. No problem. Maybe the person next to you does. And maybe the person next to them does. And that's why when we get in groups, when we look at the text, and I go, I don't, I don't know, or I have a question. That's great, because the Spirit is with us, right? The Spirit is the one guiding us to truth and reminding us of what the Word of God is saying. So it can be not fearful, because it's a communal thing, not a private, individualistic kind of thing, all right? Second kind of thing to maybe hopefully bring some uh, less fear is that sometimes truth is really more obvious than we think that it is. What I mean is, um, maybe you were told when you were younger that the story went a particular way, and so you just assumed it went a particular way, and then you never really looked at it again. And then when you look at it this time, you're like, wait, I see a lot of poetry in there. Great, the poetry's always been in there. You're just now maybe able to see it for the first time because your eyes are opened to it, right? So come with fresh questions to the text every time. That's what God is desiring or asking of us. So I'm off my little pause, back on to uh, this idea of semi-poetic language, meaning that this is poetry, chapter 1, and it has a lot of poetic language. Now, you can see that it's poetic in its structure, and some of us, again, are going, I'm not so sure I can see it. Let me help you with a simple refrain. Are we ready? It'll be on the screen. And God said, and it was so, and God saw, and it was evening, and it was morning. And God said, and it was so, and God saw, and it was evening, and it was morning. There is a rhythm, right? It's almost a bit like a hymn. If you're thinking about it this morning, we sang... A couple hymns, one of my favorite, Be Thou My Vision, right? Nobody needed to get up here and explain to you, time out, we're moving from the verse to the chorus. Why? Because you've picked it up over time. You've started to realize, like, oh, this is a verse. Now we're into the chorus. When John walked us through, like, let's start with the chorus. Okay, repeat that. You feel that? Good. That's the rhythm. Good. Now here's the verse, a little more complicated. And now we're back to the chorus, right? And we kind of figure it out. That's what's happening here. 
Now, you might go, well, why did they do that? Why did they have it on repeat? Well, because repeating is easy to be memorized or easy to be reminded of, right? And so if you're in an oral tradition and you don't have a copy of the Bible, and then your parents say to you when you're little, hey, and then on day one, and then on day two, and then on day three, and God said, and it was good, and that was evening, and it was morning, then they're like remembering, right? I mean, that's a, there's a reason that the Bible is written the way that it is written. And so no one has to tell them in an oral tradition that this is designed to be remembered because they just remembered it. Now, because that it, it is poetry and because poetry and that genre has a particular nature to it, it would be wrong of us to impose a literalistic hermeneutic on the text. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Since it is poetry and more poetic in nature, it would be wrong of us to impose a literalistic hermeneutic on the text. So it would be wrong to impose on Genesis 1 a literalistic hermeneutic. Let me explain it another way. Song of Solomon. All of our favorite book of the Bible, Song of Solomon in junior high, I loved it, okay? Some of you got that. Good. So there's a particular verse, verse, chapter 7, verse 4, that says this. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Now, this is a ravishing description. I am sure my beautiful bride would love for me to pontificate about her in these ways, I'm sure. Now, Solomon is describing his lover. He's describing the one who he is affectionate for. No one that reads this, that I'm aware of, would suggest that his lover has a hundred-foot nose. No one, right? Now, they might suggest that the poetry is describing that she has a very straight nose or a pronounced nose, but not a hundred-foot nose, not a watchtower of a nose, right? It because no one would impose a literalistic hermeneutic on the poetic writing or the poetic genre of Song of Solomon. So, I say that to say that Genesis 1 should prohibit us from reading it literally. Another way of saying that is it should prohibit us from reading it apart from its nod to its more poetic genre. Now, I say all of that, that I just said, those two important text, uh, textual understandings, so that we could get to our main points this morning, all right? And we will go through them quickly. I know, I said it's a lot of information all in one week, but you're tracking with me, I can tell. Thank you, let's keep going, all right? Number one, Genesis is a home story and not a house story. I talked about this a little bit last week, or I dipped the toe in it. I want to say this right away. God created everything, okay? You got me? God created everything. That is not up for debate this morning. Nobody's questioning that, okay? What we do have to ask is this, Genesis 1, is it a story? And is it a story intended to tell us something about a house or the construction of something? Or is it telling us, a home story where it's more about occupying a residence, okay? 
So I told you last week that I went to the Longmire's, Kevin's parents' house, and they had just built a house just recently. And I told you that when I got there, they told me the origins story of the home. Now, there are two origin stories they could have told me. The first origin story would have been about the house. So the origin of the story of the house would have gone like this. First, the foundation was poured. Then the walls were erected. Then the roof was put on top. Then they drywalled it. Then they started to paint it. Then they put in the fixtures, and we looked at the blueprints, and it was all correct, right? That is the story of a house, a structure being put together, okay? That is not the story they told me. They told me a home story. Now, the home story went more like this. They moved in. They decorated it the way they wanted to. They decided what rooms were what. And uh, they decided they wanted a fireplace, and they decided they wanted to put a porch on, and all of those things had meaning and purpose and intention behind them, okay? So here's the question. Is this a house story, Genesis 1, or a home story? Is it about a house being constructed or about a home? So the question we have to ask is, what does it look like, or what, how does a house become a home? How does a house become a home? I want to propose a simple way that if the Longmires are determining how their house moved to a home, it would look like this. They would establish what rooms would serve what functions. So this is the bedroom. This is the living room. This is the dining room. This is the kitchen. They would determine what furniture would be in each room. They would place the items in those rooms. They would move in, and then they would invite everybody over for a housewarming party, okay? Now, track with me for a moment. They didn't build anything on the home story. The house is already built. It's already erected. It's already there. They're simply coming in and saying, hey, you see this thing? We're going to call this the living room. We're going to call that the dining room. We're going to move that furniture in there. We're going to move that thing in there, and then we're going to invite you all over for a party, okay? That's how you turn a house into a home. Now stay connected with me on this, okay? House to home. Now we're going to switch the picture a little bit. Building to temple. Building to temple, okay? Temples were created to be dwelling places for God. A temple would only be a building until God took up residence in the temple, okay? So there are throughout history many stories of temples or tabernacles being built and they're just buildings until you go through a ceremony in which you then invite the deity to come reside in the temple, okay? So all of the ceremonies throughout ancient Near Eastern history that are designed to be temple ceremonies, guess how long that ceremony goes for? Seven days, well done. And guess what the days were for? They weren't for making anything because the thing was already built. They were for inviting people into it and designing what the rooms were for or expressing to the people what the rooms were for. So in a temple inauguration ceremony, the seven days were not for building anything. The construction of the temple had already taken place. The building was already made. It may have taken years to construct the temple. It may have taken years to build the tabernacle. But the inauguration ceremony would 
transition it from a building into a temple. Or to go back to our other illustration, it would transition it from a house into a home. So, what does this have to do with Genesis? Point two. Genesis 1 follows a temple inauguration ceremony in its structure. The first three days are establishing the functions of the temple. The last three days are establishing the functionaries. Okay? So what God is doing is he's naming and separating. He's naming and separating. So I'll use the first idea or the first day as an example of it. If you look on the screen. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now pause there for just one second. We know that this is not a science passage because any physicist that's in the room would certainly jump up and say, well, hold on, you can't separate light from darkness. It's impossible. At that point, you realize it's not a science book. It's not trying to be a science book. It's trying to be a theology book. It's designed to teach us something about God, not necessarily something about science. Keep reading. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the question that all of us should be asking is why did God call the light day instead of light? Why not just call the light light? Right? That would make sense. Here's why, in my opinion. The verse is not talking about the material origins of things. So the question then goes, well, what is going on here? If it's not talking about the material origin and creation of something, what is happening? Well, God is not calling the light day because what he's doing is he's calling the period of light day. And he's calling the period of dark night. Now, why? Because what he's doing is designating for us in this temple ceremony that there is a separation of time. There is a day and there is a night. And the first whole day is about time. Or the first whole expression or function is about time. Now, remember, he's not creating anything in the moment. He's simply describing what's already been created and in this temple ceremony is saying day one is about time. Now, I have no problem that many of you are currently doubting me. Not a problem at all. That's okay. So let me give you a little thing to think about. If God was worried about telling you the house story instead of the home story, he probably would have explained it a little bit differently. Part of why he would explain it differently is because the sun isn't created until day four, according to the seven days, right? If it's not created until day four, the very thing we understand to be giving us light and the very thing that we receive the light from isn't even created, therefore not giving us light at this point. So, it's, since it's a home story and only setting apart the days from the nights, the story continues to make sense. What God is doing is showing the function of, of the world and then telling us about his functionaries. So again, verse 3, establishing the functions of time and weather and food. The second three, establishing the functionaries. Let me give you a little image to help explain what I'm saying. Day one, light. Day two, sea, sky. Day three, land, plants. You see the rhythm. The first three are about establishing places and spaces and separating, right? And day four is about naming things. Four, five, and six. They're color-coded, so you see that there's a rhythm to them, right? 
It's not just random. It's all purposeful. It's also not happening in that exact order because the point isn't the exact order. The point is the temple ceremony and inauguration. All right? So we'll keep moving. He is showing what's been formed and the spaces and functions, and then he's showing what is filling those spaces. To give it a little more texture, I want to go back to the text. Igor, if you can, this is again showing that it's a house, not a house story, but a home story. Okay? And God said this, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now notice, he did not say that he created anything here. Right? Because this is a home story and not a house story. He just simply says, let the earth sprout vegetation. Let the earth do what the earth does. Let it sprout forth vegetation. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation. There's no indication of him doing any material function, right? He's simply describing what has happened and is happening in this temple ceremony. So Genesis 1 was never intended to be a story of the material origins of the world. Rather, it is a story of the functional origins of the world for those of us created in the image of God to see the cosmos as the temple of God. Third and final point right here. Cosmos as sacred space is the big idea of Genesis 1. It's all about tabernacling or templing with us. Okay? Let me explain. The days of creation, again, we just established, are a temple inauguration ceremony. The seven days are all about this inauguration. That means a couple things. One, it means the Bible has no claims to make about the age of the earth. Two, it means that this is an account is not about the material origins of the world. Three, it means that the whole creation narrative leads to the most important part of the creation account. Are you ready for it? Rest. It's the most important part of the creation account culminating in the seventh day that is set apart and looks different than all the other days. Why is rest the climax of the account? You may be asking that question in your mind. Here's why. Rest does not mean back then what it means for us today. When we tend to think of rest, we tend to think of Netflix binging, sitting around, eating bonbons, and chilling. Like, I'm tired from the week, I'm done, I'm taking a break. That's what we mean by rest. That is not the way that ancient Near East would have understood rest. They would have understood it about rule. Okay? So I conquered you, and now I rest, which means I rule you. Or I finished something, and now I'm done, therefore I owned it, I rule it, I control it. It's about engagement, not disengagement. It's about presence, not aloofness. It's about establishing something, not about being tired from creating something, therefore I need a day off, right? Um, this is a story about God creating a cosmos, and that is a temple in which God will come dwell, right? So the cosmos, just think about this, everything we see and understand is the temple 
in which God is saying, I am coming to dwell, and the Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies. That is what this account is describing. That's what it's trying to bring home. For those of us, again, who are still like, well, I don't know, it feels like there's a lot of things going on. Yes, again, because this imagery of a temple ceremony is revealing things happening on each of the ceremonial days until the last day when the deity, God, the author of everything, comes to dwell among his people. Psalm 134 speaks to that, or 132 speaks to that idea. He says, in talking about the earth and in talking about the tabernacle, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I want to dwell here among my people. Now, this temple imagery should not be surprising to any of us, and this is my favorite part of everything we've said all morning. Okay, don't miss this part. All right? Because it's going to sound familiar. So you have a guy named Moses. Moses goes, you know what? How do we spend more time with God? It feels like God's not around us. Here's what we'll do. We'll build a tabernacle. We build the tabernacle. It takes them a long time to build it. Then they have a ceremony. How long was the ceremony? Seven days. You're right. Great job. Seven days. At the end, God goes, ah, and he comes down and he dwells in the tabernacle. And the presence of God is with the people. And everyone's ecstatic. Then we fast forward and Solomon, well actually David is like, I want to build a temple. And God says to him, no, why? Because you have been a man of war and I want a man of rest. So he says to Solomon, hey, you're the one to do this now. You're a man of rest. And so Solomon takes seven years to build the tabernacle and then has a seven-day ceremony where he then invites God to come dwell in the tabernacle, or the temple. And God comes and dwells in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Fast forward. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Verse 14. And the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory of the glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is the word in Greek for dwelt in this passage? Tabernacled, right? He's saying, I have come to tabernacle among you. I'm with you. I'm present in flesh. God with us. Amazing. That's the incarnation, right? Then you get to the Holy Spirit. Remember, he then says, hey, I'm going to leave that's disappointing. Everyone's sad, right? Jesus is not going to be here anymore. Really sad. Don't worry. I'm going to give you what? The Holy Spirit. Well, where's the Holy Spirit going to be? Answer. Within us, right? And then what's the language used about us? 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple, right? And that the Spirit of God dwells within you. So he went, like Moses tabernacle, then he went Solomon temple, and then he was like, well, I'm going to get even closer. I'll come, and I'll be like with you. I'll tabernacle among you, but then I'm going to leave, but the Holy Spirit's going to come, and then the Holy Spirit's going to be with you, but like in you, because now you are walking around as living temples, right? And you go, okay, well, the story's starting to make sense, but where does it all end? I'm glad you asked. Revelation. Revelation, right? And it says this. 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. A little bit later it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Do you see the connections? The first story in Genesis 1 is taking us all the way to the last story where he will be the temple and we will be with him and everything will be made perfect. Kingdom come will be done. End of story. Amazing forever. Right? So, when you open your Bible to Genesis 1, and you look there, what you're reading is a temple narrative. Genesis 1 is a creation narrative. It's poetic. It's a home story of God naming and separating and declaring that this cosmos is a temple in which he will dwell, and it is his. He made it. We don't know when, and we're not entirely sure how, but we know that he dwells in it and made it his own and intended it for our good and for us to dwell with him. That's the creation narrative number one. Next week, we look at narrative number two. Uh, and here's what we'll attempt to answer next week, for those of you that kind of like the teaser for the next week. We'll attempt to answer these questions. How were we created? Was it really from dust and a rib? Was Adam his real name? Did everyone come from Adam and Eve? Did the ancients, or how did the ancients view Adam and Eve? And what does any of this have to do with us and Israel? 